take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 4. Once again to John chapter 4. Tonight will be part 3 in our series on worship in the Bible, true worship. And the first sermon, we took more time to look into the context of John chapter 4 here. Jesus, of course, you know the story, met this lady at the well in Samaria. And what looked like just a chance meeting there quickly turned into a very deep theological discussion full of theological debate. The lady asks him, where is the proper place to worship? In the first first sermon in the series, we looked at the context of that, whether it was a distraction method or a sincere theological question. Jesus treats it as a sincere question. And so tonight we just want to focus in again on verse 21 through 24, Jesus' reply to her. So if you would stand with me as we read this passage, John 4, verses, beginning in verse 21, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what, We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We come to this passage, study better how that, how that we can worship you in spirit and in truth, how that we can place you at the center of all, uh, all things in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would open our understanding, help us to see what your word teaches. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom as we look at this passage, I pray in your name. Amen. And you may be seated. The first sermon of this series, just to recap quickly, was the command to worship, and we looked primarily at the Old Testament, how that in the Old Testament, God had set forth very rigid rules of of place, localization, um, the institutionalized form of worship. You come to this place at this time, you do this thing, and it looked like it was an external, uh, very uh, rigid form of worship in the Old Testament. Of course, as we got to the end of that sermon, we realized that in the end, God rebuked the people because they were merely performing these things as an outward show or external without it being from the heart, which was then the point of the second sermon. The second sermon was the true nature of worship or the nature of true worship, the internal heart attitude, the definition of worship, the idea that worship in the Old Testament, and the literal idea of the the Hebrew word there was to fall down in submission and in humility, to fall down at someone's feet. And it's often found in conjunction with the word obey. And so bringing that into the New Testament, now we don't fall down at the feet of a person, Jesus isn't here, but spiritually we keep that same idea of falling down in humility and in submission to God recognizing God as the highest value, the highest supreme authority in all that we do. It is this mindset then of having an understanding in our mind 
and rejoicing in that understanding, delighting in that in our hearts. And that's what we see here in verse 24. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You can't separate one from the other. You can't have simply a head knowledge, all these facts about God that just turns into a cold religion. And on the other hand, you can't have just emotion from the heart of, I just want to serve God and, and, and think about God without actually thinking about the, the actual truths that the Bible gives us. So we have what the mind knows about God and then the heart's reaction to that, the heart's delighting, rejoicing in that. Of course, we know that even the demons know who God is. Even the demons believe in God, but their heart doesn't delight in that. Their heart doesn't place him as the highest value. And so true worship has both of those aspects of both a mental and a heart reply or response to God. And so from this understanding, we see that whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, we can literally do all to the glory of God. That is, all of our life, day in and day out, as a form of worship to the Lord. This kind of worship could be a great deed done, a great form of sacrifice, maybe a large offering, something like that that we think of as a great form of worship. Or worship could be as simple as perhaps going to bed on time Saturday night so that you'll be wide awake and alert for church on Sunday. Making the idea there being that you make a decision affecting your life, a decision based on the reality that God and the things of God are more valuable than anything else in our lives. That is true worship. To clarify on Sermon 2 then, I said I talked about music as music being uh, a facilitator of worship. Now music, the music in the church service, should be worship, yes. But my point was that music isn't by def- or isn't, doesn't necessarily mean that worship happened, right? So we can sing, we might sing the same song two weeks in a row, which we conveniently did this week. You might have last week sang this song, and your heart looked at the words, we looked at this, and we, we respond with joy and gratitude as we see, wow, these truths about God, and we rejoice in this, and our heart worships the Lord as we sing, and then you might sing the same exact song the next week, and your mind is thinking about something else, you're distracted, you're worried about something else, and you get to the end of the song and you realize I wasn't even paying attention at all to what the song was talking about. So from the external a viewpoint, it looked the same both times, right? But one time, worship was happening in the heart, the other time it was not. I like to ask sometimes, if you, if you play a CD or an MP3, if you're playing worship music in the room, and then you walk out. Does that music keep on worshiping? Like, no, of, of course not, because worship is something that happens in the heart of an individual. So, same as when we're here in the church singing, this should stir our hearts to worship the Lord, but it does not necessarily mean that every time we come to church, we worship. And I do recognize that I'm looking at worship from a very technical definition that worship should happen day in and day out, every decision we make. But at the same time, we still talk about having a worship service. This is the point of, or one of the points of a church service, 
is that we should worship. We hope that worship happens here. And so there's nothing wrong necessarily with saying we had a worship service, just like we say, I'm going to church, even though we know we are the church, and that's technically not correct. You understand. So in this aspect, I'm looking at worship as a, from a technical definition of placing God first as the preeminent authority, preeminent value in all that we do. So first sermon, the command to worship. The second sermon, the nature of true worship. And then tonight, I want to look at how we can have true worship in our lives. How we can have true worship in our lives. Since true worship is a joyful response of the heart to what the mind knows about God, what has to happen to make that worship possible? And three things that I want to look at tonight. We must have a new heart. We must have a renewed mind, and then we must remain focused on Christ. So first of all, a new heart, the unsaved heart, cannot truly worship God. And it's not a cannot as an external restriction on him. From his heart, he cannot worship God. Romans 3.11 says that there's none that understandeth, there's none that seeketh after God, talking about the unsaved The unsaved heart does not seek after God. Romans 8 says that the unsaved heart hates God. The the carnal or unsaved mind is enmity against God. The unsaved mind hates God. The unsaved heart loves darkness and hates the light. John 3, 19 and 20. The unsaved heart thinks that the truth is foolishness and cannot understand the truth of God. So, An unsaved person, you can't want what you don't want. You can't love what you hate. You can't believe what you think is foolish. And you can't see as beautiful or desirous something that you think is ugly or repulsive. So the unsaved heart cannot worship God, cannot respond in in, um, awe and wonder at the Lord. There's only one thing then that can overcome these obstacles, and that is a new heart. John 3, verses 6 and 7, Jesus told Nicodemus, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. This is exactly what has happened to the believer. God gives us a new heart at salvation. This, of course, was prophesied in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah, in the new covenant that God would take out the heart of flesh or heart of stone. And give the believer a heart of flesh. Hebrews 8 says that this has happened now in, our, in, in the New Testament era here. That we have this new heart that God has given to us. Um, Colossians 2.13 says, You being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together or made alive with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. This shows the reality of the new heart. Also, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And so, when a person accepts Christ, becomes a believer, uh, this, the new heart then enables him to worship God. Of course, we all have our ups and downs. We all have emotional roller coasters, right, Um, swings like that. So by no means am I saying if you didn't feel a heart of worship tonight, then you must not be saved. Of course not. 
But if you cannot even identify with a desire or a time or a, a thought that, yes, I want to worship God, that, that I hold Christ as more valuable than anything else in the world, then there may be cause to question this because an unsaved heart cannot worship the Lord. Only with a changed heart are we able to, to see God as fully worthy of worship. And then number two, not only a, a, a new heart, but a renewed mind. If you turn with me to Romans 12, Paul writes about this in Romans 12. The renewed mind for the Christian, Paul writes that we are, yes, with a new heart, now we need to renew or transform the way that we think. Romans 12, you know the verses, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This idea of sacrifice with a, a renewed mind, offering yourself to Christ, he says, is a, is a reasonable service. Another idea, another way to look at this, the same idea is your, your spiritual sacrifice. Offering yourself to God in this way is a, is a spiritual sacrifice to him. A sacrifice, then, of course, is, is usually dead, but this one's not. We are living a living sacrifice. We're active and doing things in this world. So how is this a sacrifice? And practically, how do we present our bodies to God as sacrifices? I think verse 2, then, is an explanation of what verse 1 would look like lived out in the world. Verse 2, negatively, don't be conformed to this world, or positively, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is what it looks like. It's a way of describing that offering of worship, of offering ourselves in worship to the Lord. <clears throat> so what verse 2 describes is a living sacrifice because in the renewal of our mind, we're putting to death the old way of thinking, putting to death their old value system, the valuing the world, and we've put that to death, sacrificed that, and now we come with a transformed mind being crucified to the world, and the world is crucified to us in Galatians 6, verse 14. So the renewal of the mind is a dying of our old values and the coming of life of new values. It is the dying of the values of pleasure and self-centeredness and the new values of spiritual values, the things that God holds dear. So it's not merely an intellectual change of mind that happens here, this non, non-conformity here, doesn't just mean that we should look at everything the world does and what the world wears and where the world goes and what the world listens to and then do the opposite. And that's a good way to become a Pharisee is just focusing on the outside. And he's also not just saying, just read a bunch of good books and figure out what good deed you should do and what, how to recognize a good deed and then just muster up the courage and the strength and the fortitude to do those things. Now the, the focus then, first of all, is, getting the, instead, is not getting the outside right, but getting the, 
the inside cleaned up so that that will affect the outside. Mind renewal is a deep spiritual change in how the mind assesses things and values things. A close parallel, of course, is Ephesians 4.23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. There you see both ideas. Uh, I was reminded Brother Williams has been preaching through Colossians, and he hit on, on these passages of Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things. That's a desire. Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on the things of this earth, on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Here's a renewal of our mind, the command to be renewed in our minds of what we seek after, what our affections are trained on making Christ preeminent in our lives. The renewal that Paul is talking about then is is deep and profound, deeper than just a mere mental effort, internal and then external. The internal renewal of the mind leads us to a transformed life that is not conformed to this world, but now the nonconformity is not just simply an external or forced, difference, but but internal and natural and free, and it flows from our desires, our values, the way that we assess uh, decisions, where our treasure is. It doesn't, or but it does change us externally and puts us out of conformity with the world. The, the desired result, though, is that that our uh, that what we that we want what God wants, that we value what God values and so the renewal of our in our minds should be this that there is nothing that I want to value more than what is most valuable and nothing that I hate more than than evil and sin so how do we do this just quickly we we of course we must have start with a new heart we must pray for the actuality of what the scripture teaches God changes the believer, but he uses means, as we'll look at in just a minute here. So we ask God, Psalm 119, 18, open my eyes, open thou my eyes, that I may behold the wondrous things out of thy law. Or we ask God to make it a reality in us that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, or Psalm, Psalm 34, 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. We can pray that the Lord would give us open eyes and a heart that desires him. We must recognize the spiritual reality of, of what has happened. Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God. Galatians 2.20 also looks at this with the idea of relying, depending on God for our power to live for him. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This idea that we are depending on God, a Holy Spirit-empowered will that desires and is able to submit to God and to worship him. So each day we live, we ask God to accept 
our lives as a living sacrifice, that, that we sacrifice our wrong desires, and then that, we would bring, that he would bring light into our lives to treasure new values, things that align to, uh, with his will, so that when we see the things of the Lord and when we need to make decisions, our values reflect his value. Our heart and our desires reflect his heart and his desires. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We fill our minds with the word of God and let God's word train our appetites and our affections, focusing on God and his word in all of life. So as a believer, a new heart, we accept the spiritual reality then of the new birth, this transforming of our mind. We pray and depend on God And then we live our lives based on those godly values, focused on God as the highest value. And that I want to look at finally is remain focused on God. And you can turn to 2 Kings 18 here. We'll get there in just a minute. 2 Kings 18. We must remain focused on God in our worship. We, we worship God by, by serving him, by coming to church, by, by participating in what we do here, in the decisions that we make. Spiritual life is a, a supernatural, divine work of God, our, the change in our lives. This is from God, but God has always chosen, or almost always, has chosen to use normal, natural means to accomplish that work of spiritual transformation in our lives. Uh, natural means like reading our Bibles, like singing, like coming to church services, these things that are meant to cause worship uh, in our hearts. But it's easy, as humans, it's easy to, to take off our focus off of God as the goal, worshiping God as the goal, and to get sidetracked and focusing on those means instead we get easily sidetracked. It's possible, like I said in the first sermon, I think, on worship, it, our hearts are idle factories. It's, it, we, we can easily turn anything, even good things, into idols in our, uh, in, to, that steal the worship from the Lord. In Deuteronomy, we won't read that verse, but, but Moses, God, God warned through Moses, the, warned the people that as they lived their lives, they would be tempted even to look up at God's creation, look at the stars, and start worshiping those things instead of worshiping the creator that made the stars. It's easy to get focused on the wrong thing. So remain focused on God, not focused on the elements of worship. You know the story in Numbers um, Numbers chapter 21, during the Exodus, we won't read that, uh, just to refresh your memory. During the Exodus, the people were complaining against God, speaking out against God and against Moses, and so God sent fiery serpents among the people that were biting the people. People were dying, and so they, cl- they um, called out to God in repentance. God had Moses make a brass serpent that he lifted up on a pole, and everybody that looked at that would be healed. You remember that story. And, of course, this was reflected in the New Testament, John 3, 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This, this serpent in the wilderness, this brass serpent, 
God used this as a means of worshiping him, and then it was supposed to be a symbol of Jesus Christ who had come. But the people, being humans, of course, mistreated or abused the privilege of having this brass serpent. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. My favorite, I don't know if you can have favorite idols. Let me rephrase that. My most fascinating idol in the, New Te- in the Old Testament is this idol called Nehushtan. Maybe you've heard of that. In, in 2 Kings 18, Hezekiah, 700 years after the Exodus, by the way, so 700 years had passed, And here we have the brass serpent that Moses had made. And of all things, here's this brass serpent, and they kept it around, perhaps, as a religious um, memento or a, a, a keepsake of those times. And I'm sure for generations they would look at that and remember the things that God had done, how they had rebelled against God, and they looked at that, and God had power to heal them. And as they looked at that, Their hearts were stirred to worship the Lord, God's power of things that he had done. But 700 years had passed, and now this brass serpent is nothing more than a pagan idol for the people in 2 Kings 18. In verse 4, Hezekiah was was, uh, cleaning up the idolatry in the nation it says, he removed the high places and break the images and cut down the groves and break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto, those, for unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and he called it Nehushtan. So here, this, this thing that God had ordered, the thing that God had used as a means or an element of worship here, the people quickly turned it into an idol, something to be worshipped itself instead of worshipping the God behind it. There is no, there was no power in that brass serpent, in that piece of metal, but they worshipped it instead of worshipping the God behind that power. Just as there's no power, no divine power in that serpent, so also there's no divine power in the ceremonies necessarily that we do. Uh, no power in itself, except that it's used to point us to Christ. So we may today look at an object or a practice that has been practiced in the past. All kinds of things that we can look at and say, you know, in past years the churches did this and they did like this and they did that. And it seemed like the Lord really blessed. And so what we need to do is we need to go door knocking, or we need to dress like that, or we need to run buses again, or we need to do this just like, they, just like we used to, because that's when the Lord was blessing. And we start looking at those things as if it was those things that, that blessed us instead of the Lord that blessed us. It's easy to turn those things into the idol. So, not focused on religious elements, but focused on God. Also, focused on God and not focused on Uh, religious ceremonies. If you'll turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Paul here is very straightforward with the Galatians. You know, we also, we have a number of religious practices, things that we, we practice here at the church, and they're meant to to facilitate our worship, to lead us to worship the Lord. Genuine expressions of worship from the heart. But in Galatians 4, Paul says that the Galatian believers 
who are sons of God are turning back into slavery because of their religious practices, good things or things that could be good. The Galatians were on the verge of accepting the Judaizers' teaching that certain religious practices should be added to their Christianity to make them more holy, to show God that they are worthy of blessing. In Galatians 4, verse 7, he says, Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. How be it, then, when ye knew God, or when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods, but now, after that, ye have known God, or rather are known of God. In other words, they are saved, they are legitimate Christians, they are known by God. How turn ye again to weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Paul warns of the danger here of their religious activity becoming an idol itself instead of used to point to God. The, the Judaizers had come in and said, if you are a good Christian, if you really want to serve God, you will observe days, the, the Sabbath day. You will observe months, the beginning of the new months. You will observe times, the major feasts, the Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, um, those things. And then years, the sabbatical years, the year of Jubilee. If you really want to be a good Christian, God commanded this to Moses, you will do these things. But Paul here is telling the Galatians, you used to be pagan idolaters, idol worshipers, but then you were set free by the gospel, and now in turning back to these religious holidays, religious days, as, as if they had spiritual value to you, said, this is idolatry. He's comparing these religious practices to Demonic idolatry, demonic idol worship. And he's so worried about this that he says they can, uh, he's so worried because they think that they can relate to God through external means like this. So to look at that in today's context, if you go to church, sing songs, study the word, thinking that this is how you're going to earn God's favor, then those things are nothing more than idols, just like a Hindu worshiping his idol, turning those things into ways that we earn God's favor completely puts them in the wrong place. We should, many of those things are good things, that we should practice, but not worshiping those, using those to worship God. If your religious practices are just checklists to make you feel good about yourself before God, then that type of Christianity is no better and no different from every other pagan religion in the world, using things to relate to God externally and physically, a checklist to earn favor with God. So Paul is exposing this as a satanic attack, as observing days, times, years. But turn with me back to Romans chapter 14, if you would. Romans 14 is an interesting contrast here. And in Galatians, he tears into the Galatians saying, you all are observing these things and this is wrong. What you're doing is not right. You're turning back into bondage. This is idolatry. But in Romans, Paul wrote to the Romans 
in Romans 14 and verse 5, it says, One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. In other words, some people, they observe these feasts. They observe the feast day, observe the Sabbath, they observe the, the, um, the years, the, the sabbatical years. Another man esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Paul, are you talking out of both sides of your mouth here? First, you condemned them because they were doing these religious practices. And now here in Romans 14, you're saying, eh, as long as you're fully persuaded in your own mind, go ahead and practice those things. So what is, is he, is he has he forgotten what he's written? Is he confused? Has he changed his mind from one time to the other? No. Read on to the next verse, verse 6. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day, to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. So in other words, Paul is saying, to the one who observes these feast days, or the one who observes these religious ceremonies, he's doing it from a heart, worshiping the Lord, wanting to please the Lord, this is a thing that God has used in his life to be fully dedicated to the Lord. Great. This other person, he doesn't see it that way. It's a thing that's not commanded in Scripture. It's, ex it's outside of Scripture. So if he doesn't want to do it this way, that's fine too, as long as he is fully persuaded in his mind. In verse, verse 4, he says, Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth, yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. In verse 10, why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So in other words, Paul is saying, if you want to, out of a heart of worship, great. If you don't want to, out of a heart of worship, it's not commanded, it's not sin, that's great too. But what you cannot do is condemn your brother, hold him to the same standard, or hold your own standard as being, this is what brings me close to God. This is, though, very easy for us to do, right? I mentioned at the beginning, on purpose, that one step uh, or one action, simple action, of worship might be something as simple as going to bed early on a Saturday night so that you can be wide awake and alert on Sunday, right? Now, what we want to do, then, mentally, quickly, Say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I'm going to set my timer. I'm going to go to bed early on Saturday. Wow, I was wide awake on Sunday. The next Sunday, I go to my brother and say, you know what? You got to get to bed early on Saturday night so you can be awake for church on Sunday. And three weeks down the road, it's become a law, become a rule. And I look down at someone else that's, that I say, you know what? That person stayed up past my bedtime. That person is not spiritual, Right? That's an extreme example. Please don't ask each other what time you go to bed on Saturday nights. Just using that as an example, how quickly we can take something that is meant to be a, a worship, a, 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 an element of worship to the Lord and flip it on its head and say, this is the definition of spirituality, is to do things my way. There's no problem in doing these things from a spiritual or personal heart of worship but the Bible has much to say against imposing them on others or doing them with the thought that they somehow make you closer to God and give you more 
of his favor. So just in closing here quickly, in worship, our minds must be focused on Christ or it quickly can become idolatry. So why do we do the things that we do? By no means am I saying the things that we do here are wrong, but we need to think, why do we sing the songs? Why do we listen to preaching? Is it just so that we can mark it off our checklist and say, I'm a good Christian? Or do we do these things to learn more about God, to delight in him, to to have our hearts transformed by the word? Are we truly worshiping uh, worshiping God through these things? All our choices in life, are they outworking of what we truly value and hold dear. Therefore, all of life is worship, either worshiping God or worshiping something else. What kind of employee we are at work is influenced by what we value in life. What kind of parent or child we are at home is influenced by or impacted by how highly we prioritize Christ in our life. All of life is worship means that every decision we make is the product of our heart attitude. And where do those decisions come from? Either a new heart or an old heart, either a renewed mind or an old mind, either a mind focused on Christ or a mind focused on something else. A heart of worship will be evidenced in the choices that we make. If our choices display that we value the world, then Chances are we're worshiping the world. If, we, if our choices display that we value God, then we're worshiping God. So in closing, a having a heart of worship, a worship, a worship in spirit and in truth can only be done from a new heart, a renewed mind that is focused on loving and valuing God above all else. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us wisdom or given us your wisdom, your understanding of how that we can place you first in all that we do, every decision that we make and every every choice that comes up, Lord, that we can, first of all, value you more, more highly than everything else, that we can place you in that position so that we can worship you by making choices that that reflect those values. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts. It's not easy, Lord. We have so many things pulling us from each side, from every side, things that would distract us and pull us away from you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to constantly be focused on you and pleasing you. Lord, help us to to live with you as the preeminent value in our lives. I pray in your name. Amen. All right, just a